0: in between all of these dark stories of disaster and judgment is a collection of Jeremiah's messages of hope for Israel's future. So he picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel had broken the covenant and gone into exile, see Deuteronomy 30, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them and transform their hearts. Jeremiah develops this promise and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of the Torah not on tablets but rather on the hearts of his own people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow him fully. And so one day Israel will return back to the land and the Messiah from the line of David is going to come and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as the true God. So these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. Rather, his own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises no matter what.
1: Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The world is broken. We all recognize it. And there are countless problems that we can't seem to solve. And it's clear that... Human evil and human selfishness and human sin is the problem. There is more than enough food in the world to feed everyone alive today and still have plenty of food left over. There is more than enough money in the world for everyone alive to live above the poverty line and still have money left over. There is enough space for everyone to live. There is enough food, energy, resources of every kind for every human being alive today. The problem is distribution money and food and all the other resources are unevenly distributed and those of us with plenty are unwilling to share and that's what leads to wars and political conflict and that's just one example sexual brokenness causes all kinds of other problems breaks apart families traumatizes children traps people in cycles of abuse and shame our own gluttony and laziness destroys our physical health and at the same time contributes to the suffering of others There are people in the world today who don't have enough food to eat, and that's why they're dying. And there are people here who eat too much, and that's why they're dying. And when you say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But it is the reality we live in. And on a smaller, more personal scale, each one of our lives are filled with broken relationships, colossal mistakes, and all the constant, small-scale suffering brought about by our own selfishness. And... None of us has any idea how to fix these things. Now, we can deal with our own personal problems well enough when we manage to actually work up the courage to do it. Um, once, Once we actually can identify where our own sin has caused us problems, we can deal with that. But there's always something else. There's always a new problem, both in our personal lives, our communal life as a church, and around the world. And it's overwhelming. And faced with the constant stream of terrible news... It'd be easy to just withdraw. To just ignore all that out there and focus on what we can control and and not care about the rest of the world. But God has a different plan. So we're here at the very end of Jeremiah in chapter 50. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then skip to verse 17 and go to verse 20. The word that the Lord spoke Concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame, Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame, her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her which shall make her land a desolation and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land, as I punished the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture. He shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none, and sin in Judah and none shall be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Something we should never lose sight of is that the powers that dominate this world will be brought down. God will tear them down if they are unwilling to serve him. We tend to get hung up on passages in the New Testament where both Paul and Jesus make statements about these, these pagan governments they live in being in authority because God has granted them authority. Right? Paul tells that to the church in Rome. Obey the government because God put it there. Jesus tells Pilate on the day he's going to be executed, you've only got the power over me that God gave you. And what they're really saying is, God is the ruler of the world. Any government, any nation that exists only does so because God suffers it to exist. Any power that a government has is an extension of God's power and God's authority. Because one thing we know about God, which we learn in the very first chapter of the Bible, is that God brings order to chaos. God does not want anarchy. Anarchy. God wants order because his creation can't flourish without order. And so even a pagan government, even an evil government, is preferable to no government. And if you read the writings of the early Christians, they didn't really care how a government came to power. They didn't care if they were elected or if they inherited a government or if they overthrew the previous government in a violent rebellion. They didn't care. What they did care about was what that government did with power once it had it. And that doesn't mean that God gives evil rulers a free pass. It means that God will hold them to account for the way that they use the power and the authority he gives them. If they abuse it, if they don't rule wisely, if their government fails to protect the poor and the needy, fails to uphold justice, fails to preserve peace, they will have to answer to God for that both in this life and in the next. Whether they believe in him or not, they have to answer for it. And that kind of action, that's not limited to the Old Testament times. God is still at work in the world today, still judging the nations today. And God will still prosper the nations that uphold justice and protect the poor and needy and preserve order and peace. And he will still tear down the nations which fail to do those things. And it's tempting at this point to say, yeah, God's going to do that to Russia because they're invading other countries. God will tear down communist China or North Korea or all these places that we are generally going to think of as evil governments. But we ought to be deeply concerned about the place we live also. How will God respond to a nation that separates migrant children from their parents, strings up deadly obstacles along its borders to kill refugees fleeing violence in their home country? How will God respond to a nation that elevates political victories over human needs? How will God respond to a nation that breeds hatred for anyone with differing political views? How will God respond to a nation that values personal freedom above personal responsibility? I hope you notice that in there you can challenge everyone across the entire political spectrum. It isn't a call out of one side or the other. They're both (laughs) going to have to think about that deeply. What will God do? God destroyed first Assyria and then Babylon, but his people still stood. His people still stand because God's kingdom is the only permanent one. It's very clear by the way, that this promise God makes in the passage I just read about you'll look for sin in Israel and you won't find any. That hasn't been fulfilled yet. There was definitely still sin in Israel when Jesus came, when they returned from exile, and there is still sin in God's people today. So this is a promise about what God is going to do in our future, one day when Jesus returns. And it helps us understand not only the purpose of the exile but also the purpose of a lot of the trials and the sufferings that you and I will experience in this life. On on an afternoon in October in 1987, a young girl named Jessica was playing outside her home in Midland. She was sitting on the ground and dangling her legs in an eight inch wide hole in the ground. And when she stood up, she fell in. She dropped 22 feet before she was wedged in between the sides of this old well shaft, with one leg sticking up, and one leg sticking down. Now luckily they were in West Texas, and so there were oil workers nearby. And they put together a rescue team, and they started drilling a shaft next to that well shaft. They drilled 29 feet down and 5 feet across. But since they were going through solid rock, it took them 56 hours to drill those shafts, 56 hours when an 18-month-old girl is wedged 22 feet down in a hole in the ground. And so the medical professionals they had already brought on site were warning them already that dehydration and shock were the biggest dangers this girl faced. So they finally reach her, and they can't pull her out. She's wedged in too tightly. And the positioning of her legs makes it impossible to get her out without risking injury. And that's when the medical team on site said, look, she has no time left. If you don't get her out now, she will die. Pull hard. You might have to break her if you want to save her. Now, thankfully, they pulled hard one last time and she came out without any further injury. But they had to be willing to break her in order to save her. God's kingdom is here, but not entirely. We have little outposts of it in our churches, in our lives, but the promise we read in Jeremiah is that one day all the nations will fall and only God's kingdom will be left. And in the meantime, God is shaping us, molding us, preparing us for what life in his kingdom will be like. And he is willing to break us if that's what it takes to save us. That's why his people went into exile. They needed to be broken so he could save them. They needed to be broken so they could be the people through whom Jesus would come. And obviously Jesus himself had to be broken so that we could be saved. We all face our own small-scale personal versions of the exile. Times when God seems far away. Times when God takes away things and people that are important to us. Times when we just don't understand why God is willing to allow us to suffer. And to be sure, I'm not saying God inflicts suffering upon you, just like God didn't shove that girl down a well shaft. But he will allow us to experience the consequences of our own sins because he knows that in doing so, he can refine us into kingdom people. Because God's kingdom is coming. One day all the nations will fall, but God's kingdom will still stand. God will deal with evil all evil once and for all he will eradicate it jesus uses the metaphor of cleansing the world with fire of purifying his people like the way you refine gold by burning the impurities out of it burning away the evil and sin and leaving behind only that which is good and beautiful and we hear that and we think it's like this judgment thing about those people over there yeah god you go get them We envision it as something that doesn't affect us. That's wrong. None of us are innocent. None of us are perfect. None of us, none of us will escape that refining process because we all have blind spots. We all have things God needs to remove from our hearts. So how is God refining you? What is God exiling you from? If his plan is to create a people in whom there is no sin, what does he need to remove from you? And is he going to have to break you in order to save you? Because in the end, there will be no place for the people who won't let God refine them. The nations are going to fall. All the problems out there in the world that we don't know how to solve that are too big for us, God will deal with them. God's kingdom will stand. May we all be refined into kingdom people. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.